Good afternoon and welcome to this live online event uh, hosted by the Cato Institute devoted to the question of does the Affordable Care Act discriminate against the sick? My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute and joining me to explore this question today will be Christopher Briggs, a communications consultant and patient advocate. Uh, good afternoon, Chris. Thanks for joining us. As well as Hi, Timothy Layton, who is the 30th anniversary associate professor of healthcare policy in the Department of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. Uh, professor Layton, thank you for joining us. So the Affordable Care Act promised to end discrimination against the sick, end discrimination in insurance uh, in terms of people being denied coverage for pre-existing conditions or being charged higher premiums for pre-existing conditions. But there appears to be a, a form of discrimination that uh, is still occurring within insurance markets and that perhaps the Affordable Care Act may have exacerbated. We're going to be talking about what that form of discrimination is. And we're going to be hearing first from Christopher Briggs, who's going to be telling us, uh, Chris, if you could, about your own personal experience navigating uh, Affordable Care Act coverage in trying to find uh, coverage that will adequately will cover uh, a health plan that will adequately cover the, the treatment that uh, that your own seven year old daughter requires, Chris. Uh, but before we uh, before we turn to you, Chris, I do want to make a, uh, a note uh, to our audience that if at any time during our uh, broadcast today you have questions, you can submit them either on the Cato webpage if you're watching there, or through Facebook or Twitter or YouTube. Uh, whenever you're submitting questions, please use the hashtag Cato Health, and we'll try to get to as many of your questions as possible. So with that, Chris, I want to uh, turn it over to you so you can relate to us your story about trying to get uh, your daughter the coverage that, for the treatment that she needs. Great. Well, thanks, Michael, for having me. I'm really grateful. Um, I didn't intend to, at, at the, you know, in my... In, to become a patient advocate, but I've had to become one because of the the, the problems that we've had with my my daughter getting quite sick and the, our ability or inability to actually get the the coverage that she needed. So maybe before I start, I, I just wanted to introduce her, maybe if, if that would be okay, um, to sort of show. I think it's be always fun. good to put a face put a face to the people that we're talking about. So I'm gonna bring her in here. I can't. So this is my daughter Colette, who's now age seven, and she's brought with her. Hi, Colette. Her favorite, uh, her favorite Disney character, who is uh, Snow White. Um, we were fortunate enough back last year to have the Make-A-Wish Foundation send the whole family, which is no small undertaking since we have you know, as many children. We have nine children. So they took all of us at a full expense paid vacation uh, for, for her and the rest of us. So anyway, we, we met Snow White, actually. So that was quite the highlight for the family. Anyway, can you say goodbye? Bye. Okay. Bye, Colette. Yeah, I mean, so essentially, this story really starts for me in 2003. In 2003, I decided to uh, become the communications consultant uh, that I kind of always wanted to be. I worked for different, different aspects of uh, corporate America and also nonprofits. Uh, and I really wanted just to get out on my own and start my own company and do what I think I'm pretty good at, which is communications and, and raising uh, money by means of that for people, as well as doing some, some uh, pretty high intensity publicity work. And one of the things that I investigated when I first started out was, of course, since I was leaving kind of a, a company setting, 
um, where I had group insurance, what was the insurance, the individual insurance market like for myself and for my family? And what I discovered in 2003, which was the case from that point until about, until the Affordable Care Act came into effect, is that I had uh, so many choices for my family that I actually had to bring in a series of brokers over the years to figure out which plan was best for my family, which was you know most affordable, which gave us the best coverage for um, the family that my wife and I decided we wanted to have, which again, we, you know, we wanted to have a big family and we now have one. Um, and the long arc of this story uh, actually is that in my view, the Affordable Care Act um, actually limits choice and actually, it, it's on a way on its it's on its path. Actually, um, like all planned economies, in my view, um, to um, being kind of an exemplar of scarcity, actually, of, of the goods needed, and that's kind of, that's kind of our story. So, in 2010, as everyone knows, the Affordable Care Act was passed. It uh, it didn't come into effect in 2014, but as soon as it was passed, I turned to my wife and I said, you know, this is this can't be good because there's no way. That the government can begin this takeover of healthcare, and everything that we currently enjoy in our our plan is actually going to stay the same. I mean, there's no way we're going to keep all the doctors, and and, and there's no way the prices are going to go lower. They're going to go higher. And in fact, that's exactly what happened in 2014. The plan went into effect uh, in January first, uh, if, if I remember correctly. And within about four or five weeks, we got our first notice from Anthem that our plan had been canceled, and that uh, we had the options to buy another plan. Uh, but it was more expensive, um, and the, the the deductibles and maximum out of pockets were more expensive as well. Um, but the real problem at that point it was a, it was an increase in, in cost. But it was that we lost all of our doctors. We did not keep the plan, and we did not keep our doctors. Uh, we, everything we had all set up, and you know, with a family of our size, we had picked certain specialists in Northern Virginia where I live, and we were very happy with that. Um, this happened again in 2015, the next year. Um, we lost the plan we had from Anthem, which is our provider, then got canceled a second time. We had to go through it all over again, and the premiums went up uh, even more. So we, in 2013, our premiums were, before the Affordable Care Act took, took effect, we were paying about $943 a month uh, in premiums. In 2014, it went up to just over 1000 By 2015, we were heading into $1,400 territory. Um and then in 2016, uh, we were at $1,600, you know, per month. And at, at each stage, the maximum amount of pockets and the deductibles were also increasing. So, so um, Chris, we were paying a lot I, more money. If I, if I hear, Chris, if I hear what you're saying, you started purchasing yeah. insurance on the individual market in 2003. So this would be about 10 right. years before Colette was born. You had that, that experience. You've relayed some of what happened when the ACA's major provisions took effect in 2014. And so far it sounds, your experience sounds pretty consistent with what uh, we've, we heard from a lot of people at the time, uh, the range of choices went down. Uh, sometimes you couldn't see a doctor, the, the doctor that you had been seeing, uh, your premiums went up. But specifically with regard to Colette, what, 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 was, what was your experience there? Uh, because she was born, uh, if she was born the same year my seven year olds were, she was born in 2013. Right. Uh, Correct. What, what what has been your experience with regard to to her coverage and care? Right. Well, so when she was first born in 2013, you know, for the uh, until 2015, uh, when she was first diagnosed with cancer in November of that year, you know, the experience was that it was like with every other child is that her, you know, we we would have these doctors lined up and we would lose them, uh, and the, it was just getting more expensive to pay for her. 
Um, and when we were diagnosed in November of 2015 with cancer, um, you know, our costs, we just, we, we maxed out, you know, very, very quickly. I mean, her first 10 days in the hospital, it was a 50 or $60,000 bill. I mean, cancer, when you're, when you're, you know, a kid and you're hospitalized, it, it just gets really very expensive. Um, and for the, for that first year, I mean, I think, you know, we had, I mean, I don't think we saw a penny of insurance money, even with cancer and paying for eight other children until probably October of that year. So, you know, um, and, and, you know, you know, we didn't have any serious illnesses before this, so I have not a lot to compare it to, but it just seemed that at every turn, the insurance companies were refusing to pay for things. So I'll give you an example. When you, when you're diagnosed with cancer, one of the things you, you're, you're given is, is steroids to help, uh, kill the leukemia, you know, the, 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 the out of control white blood cells. And as a result, your blood pressure goes through the ceiling. So they have to give these kids blood pressure medicine. So the insurance companies under the Affordable Care Act, uh, it was, I think it was Anthem, it was Anthem, you know, would pay for the actual insurance, pay for the actual uh, blood pressure medicine. But since she was, you know, two and a half, three years old at the time when she got this disease, she couldn't take a pill. So we had to crush it and put it into a liquid. They wouldn't pay for the suspension liquid, you know, which, and so things like that, nickel and dimed us all the way, you know, back and forth from the doctor. Um, so it was just this was so endless much, sort of, there's so much bigger decisions. The insurance companies were making though, beyond just the nickels and dimes, right. That, that, that affected, uh, collapse sure. care. Uh, what, can you talk about what those were that, that had you looking for other plans and so forth? Well, yeah, I mean, so every year we would, we would have to sort of look at what plans were available and, uh, and whether they, you know, they, they would cover her doctors. Um, so if you want me to fast forward to the, the problem we actually had in 17, I, I can go there, which is probably what we should do. So um, uh, in 2016, we moved to Loudoun County, which is where I am now. And that matters because what I discovered uh, is that healthcare under the Affordable Care Act is sold by zip code. Um, President Obama was elected, as everyone knows, in 16. And in 2017, about June or May, May or June or so, if you remember correct, back to then, he, one of his main, uh, he had ran on a couple different things. One of them was re repealing the Affordable Care Act, but also doing Paul Ryan's tax package. They went and it went ahead and did the, the tax bill first and left Obamacare um, sort of intact. And that, that irritated Donald Trump. And so Donald Trump sent out a, a really irritated tweet, you know, I think about June or July of 2017, saying he was just going to refuse to pay the subsidies for the Affordable Care Act. Um, now, that was of concern to us because we actually uh, went on to the Affordable Care Act and decided to take the subsidies because our premiums in 17, if we hadn't, Again, we started out at just, just under $1,000, $943. By 2017, our premiums would have been $2,500 for the family, um, which I just I couldn't afford it at that point. So we, we went on the, on the ACA, uh, qualified for it. And um, so when Trump decided not to pay, decided he was just threatening to not pay the subsidies, Anthem, because I guess it had this right, announced several days later that it was pulling out of Northern Virginia, particularly in our zip code. They were no longer going to cover um, um, what we needed in, in Loudoun County. Now, we get received care in Fairfax County, um, but it, there were two different places. When you say, Chris, when you say that Anthem pulled out of Loudoun County, did that mean they were not selling insurance anymore in Loudoun County? Or did that mean that they weren't covering particular providers in Loudoun that you needed? Yeah. So for us, it meant that they were, they were, they would cover her in, in two, for 2018, 17, we were fine. But for 2018, they were saying they were no longer going to cover uh, the hospital 
which has the only cancer ward for children in all of Northern Virginia. They were no longer to cover the hospital. They were no cover Innova Healthcare, but they were going to cover her her cancer clinic. So for us, I mean, this, is, this a little bit of detail matters here. So when you're this young, and why was why was um, that important that they cover the hospital? Why was that important to you? Yeah. So when you receive uh, cancer chemotherapy at this age, there's sort of three types. Um, one of which is done in the clinic, and that's through a, a port that was placed in her chest surgically. It was poured into her basically her chest cavity up in, into her into her bloodstream. Um, that's where she received most of her care. But there is a, a version of the care that had to be delivered to her. In the beginning, it was it was multiple times in a month, uh, if not in the first week, a couple times a week. We had to have her fully anesthetized in a hospital setting. They flip her over on her back and they take a needle about half the size of your pinky and they put it into her spinal column and put the chemotherapy in her spine to make sure that, that the leukemia cells were not replicating inside the spine. And this, uh, when Anthem announced its re retraction from the marketplace in 17 for 2018, they were going to, they would cover, it turns out her clinic, but they would not cover the, the Innova Fairfax hospital, which again is, is a big deal. Well, two things. First of all, there's, there are no other clinics in Northern Virginia except the one we were at. And there is no other cancer ward, cancer clinic, pediatric cancer clinic, except that Innova Fairfax in, in Fairfax County. So effectively, even if we could buy the coverage, it was not what we needed. My daughter would die, right? Because she needed this spinal infusion um, done. And the only way to get it done was at a hospital, which was no longer covered. So as you can imagine, you know, the panic set in and I started uh, calling around trying to figure out what we were going to do for 2018 since Anthem had said they were no longer going to going to be in the marketplace. And what we discovered is that and a bunch of other ones left at the same time. Anthem affected us directly, but others left, if I remember correctly, Northern Virginia. Cigna Connect was the plan that was actually going to be available, it turned out, for 2018. And... Um, Sorry, I actually, I got the story wrong here. Anthem pulled out completely. They were no longer going to be in Northern Virginia. It was Cigna Connect that was going to cover her health care at the clinic, but not at the hospital. That, that's what happened. And so I called around and tried to figure out what can we do possibly here. And everyone said, well, look, there's nothing that can be done. Um, so I, uh, I did, among so other you, things, so I called. You were, uh, you, were, you were needing to make a health insurance decision for your family. Your daughter has leukemia. Right. She needs a treatment that right. the doctors said. The doctor said she needed this um, uh, uh, treatment that inject, injects a chemotherapy agent directly into her spine. She needed to be anesthetized for this, right. and they said that right. needed to be needed to occur in a hospital setting. But you could not find a health plan that would cover that treatment right. for your daughter in a hospital setting. Right. So Anthem decides to pull out completely. Yes. We go looking for what other plans are going to be available for 2018. And what we discover is that Cigna Connect is the only plan. And I contrast this again with what I, you know, lived with for, for the first 10 years of my doing this is that I had a half a dozen or more plans that I could have chosen from, right? No doubt. Some of which would have covered this hospital, but by the time the affordable care act, I had a few years to keep rolling Everybody had pulled out except Anthem and Cigna. Anthem then pulls out because they don't like the way Donald Trump is talking about providing the subsidies. And Cigna is left standing. Now, Cigna you know, had made a business decision years ago, no doubt, that they were going to cover certain things in Fairfax County and Loudoun County for kids with cancer, kids without. It just they, they did the math and it, for actuarial purposes, it didn't you know, seem like a good business decision for them to cover the Fairfax hospital setting that I needed. But there were no other choices. Like for 2018, there was it. It was Signet Connect or nothing. And so, what uh, did you I, do? 
So what did you do for coverage that year? And then what did you do in the subsequent years? Did you have to go through this process again where you could not find an ACA yeah. plan that would cover? Right. So what we did care? in 2000, yeah, so we did in 2017, called the state insurance commissioner, called all of our representatives. Uh, we had a Republican House member covering us now. It's now a Democrat. Called all both our senators. Senator Warner was, was actually pretty responsive. Um, and effectively, by the time December 15th rolled around in 2017, which is the deadline under the Affordable Care Act, that consumers have to make these decisions, there was no chance that I was going to be able to buy an individual plan, uh, family plan for my my daughter or for the rest of my family that would cover, you know, cover Colette. So I ended up having to, I scrambled hard, found a, a former client of mine who ran a foundation who decided to put me on uh, for enough hours during the, during the week, during the, during the week that I could qualify for their health plan, which they didn't actually have one. They ended up buying one for me, uh, ended up having to pay a bunch of money for that, uh, almost $3,000 a month. Um, but it did the thing that was necessary. It covered Colette at, it was a group plan. So it was, it was fine. It covered everybody, you know, in the family, plus her at her clinic and then at the hospital. So that was, that was 2018. Now, because of the, of the pressure that we managed to put on I went to the Washington Post. They did a new story about this. NPR interviewed me. Um, I actually went I went after the, our political representatives, and they didn't very much like this news story about, the, you know, effectively my daughter is, you know, the face of the failure of the Affordable Care Act. Here's a kid in Northern Virginia with cancer, and her father, um, it's not that the prices were too high. It's that there was nothing to buy. You know, I mean, high prices in a free market are a signal for other providers to get in. But in a planned economy, high prices are, you know, a sign that the engine is overheating and you're on the way to where planned economies really end up, which is scarcity. There's nothing to buy. And that was the problem I had. There was nothing to buy. So I had to get out, get this very expensive group plan. April of 2018, because of the political pressure we were able to put on the publicity, Cigna and the Innova Fairfax system got together and did come in in April 1st of 2018. But because of the way the Affordable Care Act is set up, that was too late for me because, you know, once you decide of, in December 15th of the previous and, year, you can't switch out. So for 2018, when you say they came in, what they actually did was they announced they would cover the care that Colette needed at the facility Correct. where her doctors recommended it. But right. the what they call the open enrollment window had already closed and you were in that 10 month or uh, 11 month period where the Affordable Care Act prohibits people from buying, right. from enrolling in a new health plan. Okay. Right, right. And that's what happened. So we couldn't take advantage of Cigna Connect. We had to do this very expensive group plan. Um, uh, we, we had to, you know, we had, it was extremely expensive. We had, we went into debt trying to pay for it. Um, in any case, so fast forward. So in 2000, at the end of 2018, um, we did in fact have only one choice on the individual market. Cigna stayed in for 18 and said they were going to stay in for 2019. So we ended up buying Cigna Connect, that plan, um, which is kind of a down market plan. It isn't a great plan, but it did the thing that was necessary. It covered Colette at Fairfax Hospital. It also covered her at her cancer clinic down the street. Um, so for 2019, we had Cigna. Now, the story gets really interesting because I figured we kind of had solved this problem and that we weren't going to have a, another issue like this, but I was wrong. In 2019, last year, um, we went to re-up for Cigna. And what we discovered is that Anthem had come back in the marketplace with actually a plan that was pretty interesting. It was, uh, it was cheaper by several hundred dollars on the premium side. It was, uh, it was richer in terms of its benefits. And I think, uh, I think the maximum out of pocket was pretty high, but 
you know, it was Anthem, it wasn't Cigna. And the other thing is the other kids in our family could get some of their specialists back, which Cigna would not cover. So we opted for the Anthem plan for 2020. And I have to say, you know, I was, I, I hate to admit it as a free market conservative, but I was so grateful to the government that it permitted me, Caesar permitted me in 2020 to have a, a choice of two plans instead of just the one it had inflicted upon me in the last couple of years. So we took the second plan, the Anthem plan, and we were going along our merry way. And, you know, by this point, Colette is out of her treatment. She's in remission. Um, and as you can see, she looks, she looks pretty good, but she's in this five-year window where if it's going to come back and kill her, it's going to come back sort of now and for the next couple of years. Um, so I get a letter mid-March, not from the hospital, but this time from the cancer clinic where we hadn't had a problem before, but now we had a problem. Anthem had decided that as of April 1st of 2020, despite having promised people like me who did the due diligence last year and checked, uh, and after talking to the clinic who also confirmed this, that Anthem would be in for the whole year of 2020, in mid-March, they said, they did. I must, they must have run the numbers and said, we're no longer going to cover this clinic in Northern Virginia, which is the only pediatric cancer care clinic that anybody in this area can actually go to. And unlike last time where I had a couple of months to figure this out, this was April, this is probably March 18th by the time I got this letter. We had until April 1st to figure this out. So I reached out uh, to our Senate, Senator Warner, who had been the most responsive last time, and got a hold of his, his staff and said, okay, this is, this is terrible. I'm here again. And here's the problem. If you don't fix it by about this weekend, you know, by next week, more or less, I'm going to be without health care in the middle of the coronavirus. Anthem, because here's the headline, Anthem is not going to, it refuses to cover kids with cancer in Northern Virginia during coronavirus scare. I said, that's what, that's the headline I'm running with unless you fix this. And, um, and I told them then what I told them the first time, I said, you know, I purchased healthcare on the private market before the government took it over through two wars in Iraq, a war in Afghanistan, Katrina, the 2008 meltdown, the election of Barack Obama and Donald Trump. And I could buy healthcare without interruption at reasonable prices. And then, you know, you Democrats take this, this entire system and tie it to what is by design an extremely volatile political system, which is the American political system. And because of that, you've introduced unimaginable volatility and, and you're basically so giving scarcity here. And I said, you're gonna need to fix this. And so over the weekend, something happened. I, I suspect the Senator or her staff called Anthem and lo and behold, by Monday, they had agreed to cover my daughter and all the other kids at this clinic, because my daughter's not alone here. There's a couple hundred kids at this clinic who probably have the same problem my daughter has. They won't give me the numbers for privacy reasons. And, you know, we're covered between, you know, then April 1 and April 1 of 2021 with no promise from anybody that I'm not going to be here again next year. And before I came on today, I called last week the senator's office and said, look, I'm going on this you know, I'm going to talk to the Cato people about this. Do you want me to report anything about what you're going to do to make sure that I don't have this problem again or the people in this clinic don't have this problem again? And I got no answer back. So uh, to recap, Chris, um, you had coverage before the ACA. You're reasonably satisfied with it. And there are a number of choices. Uh, the ACA comes along and your daughter gets a cancer diagnosis. Uh, and then the ACA plans were doing various things that prevented you from getting the coverage that she needed, uh, exiting from the market, excluding the hospital that her doctor, the hospital 
where her doctor said she needed to have her uh, cancer treatment, later excluding the cancer care center where she receives treatment. Uh, and you, as a communications professional, you and, and a reasonably well-to-do person, you know how to uh, push the government's buttons. You're in touch with your uh, elected officials in both the House and the Senate. Right. And uh, as also as a communications official uh, or, or uh, communications professional, you know how to go to the media with a story like this. That uh, uh, and you're getting national news organizations like NPR and the Washington Post to report on this. And still, uh, how many years later now are we? Five years later, four years later, right. you're still not sure that you're that uh, you know next year. Uh, you will have the coverage that Colette needs for the care that she needs. Um, That's very I, true. I, actually, yeah, I want to I'm... thank you. Well, I want to thank you for that and sort of pivot to, you know, take a step back to the, what are the broader issues here? Because there are, uh, yours is well, actually Michael, not before, wait, 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 Michael, before you go, let me just Please. get this out there. So one of the, this is important. One of the things we did do when we lost, when we were threatened in March of this year to lose healthcare coverage by April, we called, the the uh, the exchange, and said, "Listen, Anthem has just pulled out. They knew about this." And I said, "And the Signet plan is still available, is it not?" And they said, "Yes, it is, Mr. Briggs." I said, "Well, why don't you give me the waiver so I can buy that plan?" And they said, "Well, you haven't died, you haven't moved, and there's no been uh, no other life event, which is I guess the term they use. So, no, under no circumstances can you buy this alternative plan that is available. But you made the mistake, Mr. Briggs, of not buying this plan back in December. So, good luck." And, and my right. point also is this, I mean, it, it, in a way, you could say that my, I have been a success story here. I'm a hero in a way for trying to, for twice now, battling the federal government and these insurance giants, forcing them all to get together and get these kids covered. But you know what? That actual story of success is a story of failure because, you know, as you said, I'm a guy with a lot of education. I know how to do this. I'm a media professional. I, I know how to create this story. You know, you do not judge the health of a system, particularly healthcare people with kids with cancer, a little girl with pigtails, by how well the people at the center of this system, and namely me, can sort of jury rig this and make this system provide healthcare. This is a failed system, and we're on the way to having it blow up completely. This does not end well. And there's only one alternative. It's either total government takeover of healthcare, or we have to redo this and go back to a, a, a true market in healthcare where guys like me can buy healthcare that's tailored to my family. Or we're going to end up you know, like the European countries. And you know what? Guess where people go to, for cancer care? Chris, they don't go to England. I'm done. So, Chris, I learned about your story because you were able to pitch it to the Washington Post and uh, and, and NPR. Correct. Uh, but I also I, I also collect these sorts of stories, and uh, and my collection has uh, you know a number of them. These these uh, folks on your screen are just a few of the stories that uh, that I've collected of patients who've had uh, a very, uh, who've had their coverage change in a way that almost seems targeted to uh, deprive coverage uh, to uh, patients with high cost needs. Uh, uh, Shelby Rogers, for example, has spinal uh, muscular atrophy. Uh, she was not in an ACA plan. She was in uh, a, a similar exchange with the similar sorts of uh, pre-existing conditions rules that the ACA plan has. We call it the Federal Employees Health Benefits Program. She, like Ian Pearl, who, is, uh, who had coverage through a small business in New York, lost 24-hour nursing coverage 
which is not a particularly expensive benefit, but it is a benefit that expensive people use. And Julie Davis and others on here lost uh, uh, coverage for uh, the epilepsy drugs that they need in Julie Davis's case uh, in an ACA plan. Uh, and this appears to be uh, a recurring problem in plans that have rules uh, like the ACAs that prohibit discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions up front when you're applying for insurance. Uh, but they, there appears to be another kind of discrimination at play uh, in health care markets with those rules. And we can see it with regard to ACA plans um, because uh, if you look at the, uh, the, the networks in ACA plans, over time, those have gotten narrower and narrower so that the ACA plans are covering fewer and fewer providers in each area. The blue bars here are uh, plans with restrictive networks. The green bars here are plans with uh, more, less restrictive networks. And you see the green bars are getting smaller and the blue bars are getting larger. Uh, they are, uh, the ACA plans, uh, this graph from Avalair shows, are covering fewer providers than uh, em employer-sponsored plans are covering. In the exchange, uh, in the exchange plans, on average, they're only covering two thirds of the providers that employer-sponsored plans are covering. There are other ways that ACA plans appear to be making their uh, their offerings less attractive to the highest cost patients. This is a chart from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. The important part is over on the right, and it shows that as the uh, uh, sort of the cost of medications increases. Uh, the uh, plans, the ACA plans are not only relying on coinsurance instead of copays, but are increasing the amount of coinsurance uh, uh, for uh, for expensive specialty drugs. Uh, this problem, which uh, appears to be discrimination against people with very expensive conditions, is something the patient advocates have identified. There's a coalition of a couple hundred patient advocacy groups called the I Am Essential Coalition, and they, they've they noticed this trend and they say it completely undermines the goal of the ACA. They say that uh, it's happening to people with cancer, uh, like Colette, but also people with HIV, multiple sclerosis, and other diseases. And, um, and, and now I wanna sort of pivot and talk to uh, Tim Layton about this. Tim, you've been very patient. Uh, uh, I wanted, to uh, bring you into the conversation because you and I, uh, as economists, have very different views about what exactly, uh, about uh, about this dynamic, but we actually agree on a lot of things as well. So why don't you go ahead and and, and talk about uh, the, the dynamic that, that, uh, that Chris has been describing and to which I've been alluding uh, and what you think is going on here with ACA plans. And, and, and is sure. there, you know, there's always an incentive for insurance companies uh, to deny coverage because if they deny coverage for something, they get to keep the money. And there are also clinically valid reasons why an insurance company might deny a, a particular treatment or a treatment at a particular site. But there are also additional incentives here that the ACA creates. And I was hoping you could talk about those for a bit. Sure. Happy to. Thanks, Michael. And thanks, Chris, for sharing your story. I, I first want to say that, that yeah, Chris's problem is is not unique, as as Michael pointed out, um, but that it's actually kind of a recurring thing in the marketplaces throughout the country that 
what we see is that in the marketplace, most of the coverage tends to be somewhat skimpy, have pretty narrow networks, often have closed formularies, et cetera. I do want to note at the outset of, of my remarks here that things for people who were sick were also not particularly great before the Affordable Care Act, uh, when you know if someone lost their job and got uh, got cancer, that oftentimes they wouldn't be able to purchase coverage at all or were quoted insanely high rates. Now, so there are some things that the, the Affordable Care Act started, but there were also some things that, that it tried to address. I also want to note that this problem of having only access to narrow networks and closed formularies has also been felt by millions of low-income Americans for a long time. In the Medicaid program, there has been little access to broad networks, broad formularies, and high-quality specialty care. I think what has happened is that the marketplaces have turned into a kind of subsidized Medicaid buy-in program, um, where the only plans that are really available are plans that look a lot like uh, Medicaid plans in terms of their networks, access to specialists, et cetera, as, as Michael has shown. And, and the question here is, is why? And so I want to talk about kind of the, um, the technical reasons. And yeah, I'm going to get a little bit into the weeds, but I'll, I'll try to stay uh, as far out of them as possible. And I think there, there are kind of two big reasons as to why we see what we see in the exchanges. And they, they importantly, they, they interact with each other in really important ways. The first reason is that it turns out that marketplace consumers are extremely price sensitive. And by that, I mean that they care a lot more about price than they do about other dimensions. Um, the majority of, of people in the marketplace care a lot about just finding the cheapest plan they can possibly find um, and less about what the formula looks like and what uh, networks look like. Um, not only are they really price sensitive, but a large portion of them are new entrants in a given year, churning out of other markets and making importantly active choices on an annual basis. And so when the consumers are making active choices, price is very salient to them. And so they make choices really putting a lot of weight on the price when they make that choice. And so what these extremely price sensitive consumers do is they drive insurers to push the price down as far as possible. And how do insurers do that? Well, the only tools they have at their disposal are narrow networks and closed formularies. The, the second force that interacts with price sensitivity is known by economists as adverse selection. And the issue here is that the, the most price sensitive consumers also just happen to be kind of the prize that every insurer wants, which is the healthy kind of profitable consumers. And because of this, these healthy price sensitive consumers end up driving the market. And so insurers are competing desperately to get these consumers, not just because they want to be the one who gets these healthy folks, but because they really want to avoid being the insurer that prices a little bit too high and gets stuck with only sick enrollees. And so the problem here is that the only people who care about networks and formularies in the marketplaces um, are people like Chris. They're people that insurers don't want to enroll, uh, to be honest, because they are costly. Uh, they're expensive to them. And so this differs a lot from other markets like Medicare Advantage or Medicare Part D, where all the consumers are are not really particularly, really, really healthy. They all use some healthcare. And so they care about networks and formularies. And this marketplace market, um, there's a small minority of the population who actually really cares about this. And they just happen to be the people who are sickest. And 
the fact that insurers respond to this by offering only kind of narrow network and closed formulary coverage, it, it's not that the insurers are necessarily being devious or evil or anything. This is insurers that are really worried about staying solvent. I mean, if you think about it, if I'm an insurer and I offer access to high quality specialty care, I have to charge more to do so. And because I charge more, I lose all of the healthy patients who don't care about that high quality specialty care. And now my average costs have really skyrocketed because I only have sick people left and that forces me to raise my price. But if I raise my price, I lose the few healthy people who are left. And then I'm only left with sick people. And at that point, I have to charge a price equal to the cost of my sick people. And at that price, which is going to be very high, probably a higher price than most patients are willing to pay or able to afford, it ends up that it's better for me to just drop out because nobody's going to pick me at the price that I offer. And this is probably a real problem. The only reason I say probably there is because in some cases, it's not entirely clear that the value, uh, that there's value generated by those broad networks or broad formulas. As Michael said, there are some of these drugs that it's not clear the benefit of those drugs. In other cases, though, the benefit is clear and they're still being excluded. Um, but the reason is because if you include them, uh, then you attract enrollees that may force you to force it to, to shift your price up. And so I think that this, this is a pretty hard situation and a pretty hard uh, question. I think importantly, though, I really want to point out that this is not something that the kind of policy wonks that designed the current system just missed. They understood that this was going to be a problem and they put tools in place to try to deal with it. The primary tool uh, is risk adjustment, which is a, a policy that kind of forces backdoor transfers from insurers that enroll healthy people to insurers that enroll sick people. And without these transfers, the market would likely be even worse than it is. The, the problem here is that these transfers are, are not, not enough in this setting. These transfers, they're based on diagnoses that appear in health insurance claims and insurers effectively get bigger transfers if their enrollees have more diabetes diagnoses, more cancer diagnoses, et cetera. And this counteracts the incentives that I spoke of earlier, because if you pay enough for someone with cancer, then insurers will no longer want to avoid them. They'll want to do everything they can to attract them, including provide access to the kind of care that cancer patients would like to have. And additionally, if you penalize insurers for enrolling healthy people, then those people become much less attractive and will no longer drive the market. That's effectively what risk adjustment tries to do. But there are a couple of problems with the current system in that one, those diagnoses are, are pretty noisy signals of patients' health status and costs. What do I mean by this? I mean that of people who actually have diabetes, only a small fraction of them uh, get the diagnosis necessary for the payment during the year. The second problem is that the transfers have been somewhat watered down. Um, lobbying from the Skippy plans has resulted in the transfers being cut some via a bureaucratic tweak to the formula. So if we want to have high quality specialty care, open formulas, et cetera, available on the marketplaces, there is an easy answer here, which is to boost the risk adjustment transfers. They already do a pretty good job of tagging the adversely and advantageously selected plans. We just need the transfers to be larger than they currently are, and that's very easy to do. But there is a trade-off to that in that enhancing the transfers would make the Skippy plans more expensive. That's indeed part of the point. Um, and this could force some unsubsidized folks out of the market entirely. And you know, it would also end up costing money in the form of, of larger subsidies that are linked to those prices. So you only want to do this to the extent that you believe that those higher quality plans are creating value uh, rather than just kind of sucking up surplus via market power. So overall, I just want to say this, this is a problem that I do believe to be somewhat solvable in the current framework. 
this is a market failure that's inherent to insurance markets. Um, even when you allow for risk rating, like was allowed prior to the ACA, adverse selection was a real problem there as well. It manifested itself in the form of denied coverage and in the form of high premiums for sick people. Um, here, it's manifesting itself in a different way in the form of, of skimpy offerings. But we do have a market solution, which is, uh, which is risk adjustment. And it, I think it's just not being used aggressively enough to make these options available. So we can make them available either by ramping up those transfers or by providing some form of incremental subsidy for those higher quality options. And yeah, it's, it's a hard problem, but I think there's, there's really no free lunch here and it's, it's difficult to solve in any type of setting. So Tim, thank you. You did talk, you touched on a lot of the areas of agreement that we have, a couple of areas of disagreement, but let me see if I can, uh, if I can concretize this a little bit with some numbers, actually numbers that come from your study, because then I think that can really uh, 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 illuminate the dynamics that the ACA has introduced and sort of layered on top of the, you know, some of the perverse incentives that would exist in a, in a, uh, and did exist in a market system for health insurance and did exist prior to uh, prior to the ACA. So the ACA's pre-existing conditions provisions say that uh, if you've got a healthy and a sick person of a given age, you have to charge them the same premium for the same plan. For the sick people, this sort of acts as what economists call a price ceiling. The insurer would want to set the price higher for the sick patient. Let's say that patient has multiple sclerosis. The insurer would want to set that uh, price uh, uh, at an actuarially fair level so that if uh, the average MS patient costs $61,000 per year to insure, the insurance company would set the premium at about $61,000. But the ACA says, no, you can only charge them whatever you charge the healthy people. You can't charge them anymore. And so if that premium is, let's say, $10,000, what that means is the insurance company is charging MS patients a $10,000 premium, knowing that those MS patients are going to cost them $61,000. So I think we agree on the incentive that that creates for insurance companies. Even if you enroll as many healthy people as you as you can, because you got ten thousand dollars is the lowest premium in the uh, uh, for this level of coverage in the market. Even if you got lots of healthy people in there, there's still a perverse incentive for the insurance company to make their coverage just a little bit worse than their competitors for MS patients. And the reason is, as you mentioned, the MS patients care a lot about network breadth. They care a lot about the formulary and whether it covers all the drugs that they need and whether it uses cost sharing versus co-payments because co-payments mean you're going to pay a fixed amount and you know what that is up front. Co-insurance is a percentage of the drug's cost price and so you don't know how much you're going to be paying for that drug. Uh, the These pre-existing conditions provisions in the ACA uh, tell the health plan you're going to be getting $10,000 in premiums paying $61,000 in claims for every one of these patients. And that creates a perverse incentive, as I said, for their for the insurer to make their plan just a little bit worse than their competitors so that all of those MS patients go to their competitors' plans and break down their competitors' bottom line where there'll be a $51,000 liability rather than each of those patients be a $51,000 liability on, uh, on, on the books of our health insurance plan. And... Uh, as you say, the architects of the ACA knew about this. They knew they were introducing this perverse incentive where, where one insurance company is going to try to make their uh, MS coverage worse than the next than the next insurance companies, and then the that insurance company has the same incentive, and you can get sort of a race to the bottom in terms of in terms of coverage. 
they created what you call uh, one. Uh, it's uh, you, you mentioned it was a market solution. It's a government program called risk adjustment, where they the government taxes uh, insurance companies and and gives the and gives targeted subsidies to insurance companies that enroll MS patients, with the hope that they are uh, giving the insurance companies enough that net of uh, the premiums they collect from the uh, enrollees and these risk adjustment subsidies, that insurance company is getting $61,000 to insure that MS patient. So there's no incentive for the insurance company to make their coverage worse for that MS patient. Um, I didn't just pick, that's, that's the theory behind risk adjustment, but I didn't just pick that $61,000 number out of thin air. That actually comes from a, a study you did on the exchanges with Michael Caruso and Daniel Prince, where you said the average claims uh, filed in in, in, uh, in the year you studied for MS patients with exchange plan coverage was sixty one thousand dollars, and you calculated that uh, net uh, for people who had uh, who who um, filed claims for drugs in the class of drugs that treats MS patients, you found that uh, the for those patients the premiums plus risk adjustment subsidies for MS patients. Uh, for for those MS patients was not uh, sixty one thousand dollars, but forty seven thousand dollars. So there's no longer a fifty one thousand dollar incentive for them to make their coverage worse for MS patients to encourage MS patients to go someplace else. But there was a fourteen thousand dollar incentive for them to do that, and fourteen thousand dollars per MS patient. And uh, and you also found that you uh, that that this was that these incentives were affecting in the behavior of exchange plans. That they relative to employer plans, they were making their drug coverage less generous for expensive illnesses like MS. They were using uh, high cost sharing through, well, just high cost sharing overall, but also co-insurance instead of co-payments. They were excluding, and this this is I think is is the most interesting and telling part of uh, what you found in that study. They they were excluding coverage for low cost generic drugs that MS patients use. Not because, or I'm sorry, they were requiring high cost sharing for low cost uh, generic drugs that MS patients use, not because those drugs are expensive, they're generics, but because the patients who use those drugs are expensive. And this is a tool that not only would encourage those MS patients to choose another plan, but the ACA would reward insurance companies for implementing these measures that, that make coverage worse for the sick. And these are incentives, I think, that exist on top of whatever incentives would exist in a market system, a total, totally free market for health insurance, where you know insurers might want to deny coverage for some things out of greed or for clinically valid reasons. The ACA layered on top of that this incentive for insurers to make their coverage worse for the sick by effectively penalizing insurance companies that do offer the best coverage for the sick. Now, I know that you and I have different interpretations about uh uh, about uh, uh, the wisdom of the ACA's uh, pre-existing conditions provisions. But I want to ask you if that's a fair categorization of both uh, the dynamic uh, that the ACA has introduced into the individual market, as well as your research about that dynamic. Yeah, let me make a couple of points about this. I think, you know, the dynamic is largely as you described that, you know, if if there's somebody who's going to cost the insurer a lot of money, 
um, and they're not going to get compensated fully for those costs, then the insurer is not going to want to enroll that person and is going to do things to try to avoid doing so. Um, and in particular, you know, as you pointed to like these different drugs, that's one tool that the, the insurer can use. I think um, I should point out though that like in the, it's definitely the case that the ACA in using these kind of community rating guaranteed issue types of provisions added this kind of factor that would make it so insurers would not want to cover um, cover uh, these types of things for, for sick people. I want to say some of that did exist previously. Adverse selection was not is not something that was like brand new introduced by the ACA. It's something that was made more severe by the ACA. Previously, you experienced this type of adverse selection dynamic, but within the rate cells that insurers could charge, um, what the ACA did was say, basically, there's one rate cell. Um, and so it, it basically strengthened that incentive. I think the key thing to understand here, though, about the ACA is that, yes, it did make it so that insurers would less want to uh, cover these drugs for people with MS. But one, you know, if those risk adjustment payments are, are right, then, you know, it, that counteracts it. But two, you know, you're talking about this MS drug that costs $60,000. Without the, the kind of guaranteed issue and community rating provisions of the ACA, then the insurer would want to charge that person a premium of $60,000, right, which is a, a lot of money. Um, and it turns out that, you know, if I get MS, right, ultimately under, under the risk rating system, I'm basically insured against any health shocks that I get over the course of my contract, but beyond my contract, I'm not insured, right? So I'm insured against kind of short-term health shocks within the length of my contract. But if I go into the long run and I get sick in the long run, I was not protected against that. Now I am uh, because the insurer can't charge me more because I have MS, right? They can't charge me $60,000. And there's the trade-off, right? On the one hand, we now have protection against kind of this long-term, what economists call reclassification risk, where I move from the healthy category to the sick category. But the cost of that was that insurers would now have incentives to, tr to try to design their products in ways such that sick people would not like them. And the answer to trying to, to try to deal with that was this, this risk adjustment system behind the scenes that tries to counteract those incentives. I hope that trade-off, like that I was able to characterize that in a way that, that is clear. That does, make, that does make sense. There are important trade-offs here. I think though that uh, it's not entirely true that you would have no protection against a $60,000 MS drug because Prior to the ACA, markets developed by themselves a way of spreading the cost, the cost of that $60,000 MS drug across a broad group of patients, a broad group of consumers, and in a way that provided a long-term long protection against the cost of illness, not just one-year contracts. And that was an innovation called guaranteed renewability, where in addition to uh, setting your premium according to what your health risk is for this year, the insurance company will uh, add a little bit to cover the costs, the, the long-term costs of any chronic conditions that anyone in that risk pool uh, develops in that year so that the small share, you're paying an additional, say, 25% on your premiums and that additional 25% covers 
the long-term costs of the MS drugs that people who develop it, you know, who get an MS diagnosis that year um, will need. They're a very small share of the population, so that extra 25% goes quite a long way. And you know, you, it could be 30% or 20%, depending on what you what sort of inflation factor you want to build into that guaranteed renewability protection. But uh, I think it was because that that product was available, actually mandated by the government, although uh, the private sector provided uh, uh, broader guaranteed renewability protection than the government mandated in 1996 before the government even mandated anything. Um, uh, the, the, through that innovation, the market was already providing essentially long-term coverage. Uh, and one of the trade-offs that the ACA made was not only substituting what we call community rating or this, the pre-existing conditions provisions for that guaranteed renewability protection, but it also substituted these one-year contracts for uh, the long-term contracts that guaranteed renewability offers. And uh, the, those, those one-year contracts actually play into or exacerbate that dynamic where uh, the ACA punishes insurers that offer the best coverage for MS patients. Um, before we get to the questions uh, from our viewers, there was one more uh, uh, point that I, I wanted to make, and, and, and I, uh, you brought it up, and I am excited to use the graph that, uh, from your paper with uh, Mike Russo and uh, Dan Prinz, uh, because uh, this did such an excellent job of capturing uh, the dynamic you were talking about with regard to um, how to fix the risk adjustment. So risk adjustment is trying to get insurance companies, quote unquote, the right price uh, for each enrollee so that there's no incentive for them to avoid enrollees. What you did on in the left panel here, you, you put average claims by you know, patient group or a cost, you know, claims the, the value against insurance companies uh, by, uh, by patient group on the x-axis in this white in this left-hand panel. And on the right, uh, or on the on the y-axis on the left-hand panel, you put the, the amount of money that they get from uh, both uh, the federal government and from premium payers. And if the price is exactly right, if the premium is, uh, the, the, the price that they're receiving is exactly right, then the circle for, which corresponds to the number, the size corresponds to the number of patients in that patient group, the, the circle will be right on that 45 degree line. And what we see is that a lot of them are, for the largest patient groups, the lowest cost patient groups, they are pretty close to that line. The prices that the insurers are receiving are pretty close to the costs of each of those patients. But as the patients get more expensive, we see there are a lot of circles below that line. One of them is for multiple sclerosis. That means that the insurance companies are not getting, and I think that it's that, uh, it's that hollow circle that's uh, uh, below the line and to the right, the, the rightmost one that are MS patients, the insurance companies are not getting uh, a price that corresponds to the cost. And so for all of those circles beneath that 45 degree line, the insurance companies have that incentive we described to make their offerings worse for those patients. However, what you mentioned is if we, if we give, uh, if we put more money into the risk adjustment uh, program and those insurers get bigger subsidies for all of those patients, then they won't have an incentive to avoid them. But there is another problem. If you look at the, the circles that are above that 45 degree line, what, what that means is the insurance companies are getting more from the premium payers and the government 
then those patients for each of those patients and those patients are costing them. That means they have an incentive to enroll those patients. And you might think that that's a good thing, but it also creates another problem, which is and another, another trade-off, which is it encourages insurance companies to offer these folks more generous coverage where maybe they're, they'll cover uh, more, more drugs that aren't particularly cost effective, but, uh, but might expose those patients to significant risks, or uh, they'll provide other uh, uh, types of uh, uh, make their coverage more generous in other ways that might expose those patients to risk. So there, what the risk adjustment program is doing is an exercise in trying to get the prices right. It really is an attempt at government price setting. This, this graph on the left shows that they're getting the prices wrong in a lot of places. Uh, there are problems whether they get the prices too low or they get the prices too high. Um, and, and my concern is that, is that there's nothing self-correcting about any of this. If this were a market system, even a guaranteed renewability insurance system where you are pre-committing uh, to, to the insurance companies to making future, future payments, there are incentives th that will correct those prices, if not immediately, then over time. But here, the incentives are, are not, uh, uh, there, are no, uh, there are no incentives that will automatically uh, self-correct these uh, mispricing errors. And so the prices that uh, the, the the pricing errors that we see here are likely to persist. So, uh, Tim, I want to uh, ask you if you want to comment on that, and then we can take questions. Yeah, I mean that's totally an accurate description of the program. In that you have to kind of choose the price uh, for these these different groups. And again, like this is a world of the second best, as economists call it. Like we have a trade off here. Uh, between the problems that come from, you know, having risk rating and the benefits that come from guaranteed guaranteed issue and uh, community rating. I think, you know, there is a potential kind of happy medium um, where the market forces set these prices, but at the same time, you remove the kind of the, the, the differences across the rate cells. You could imagine a system where limited ri risk rating is allowed maybe at the level of like the, the disease and which is essentially what was going on previously. And at the same time, the subsidies, rather than being set to be the same for everybody, the subsidies are set at the rate cell level where for a diabetic insurers kind of set a premium uh, for a diabetic and the subsidy that a diabetic receives is set according to the, the second lowest price diabetic plan, right? Um, and this actually you know, fixes the selection problem because you only have to worry about selection within the cell now, which is the same as the previous world, the pre-ACA world. But it also solves the kind of fairness and the long, long run risk concerns in that uh -huh. everyone has access to a plan that net of the subsidy is at the same, is the same price, right? And so in that in that type of world, you get the benefits of kind of risk adjustment without the need to set the prices uh, behind the scenes. You let the insurers kind of bid for a diabetic, for a cancer patient, for you know each each class of patient. And then you just set the subsidies accordingly so that everybody, no matter whether they have diabetes or cancer or whatever, um, they have access to a plan that costs the same amount. 
um, which would be the, the kind of net of subsidy premium. In that world, you could solve you could solve this problem. I think generally, like people have gone wanted to go like all in in one direction and all in or all in in the other direction, um, rather than kind of looking for a kind of happy medium type of solution like that. Okay, so I have questions about uh, about how you would structure that. I may have to ask you afterward because I want to bring Chris back in with our first question because it bears on uh, the trade off question, the trade off issue, Tim, that you raised. Uh, we had one uh, questioner ask, you know, what year was Colette diagnosed, and were you ever faced with trying to buy coverage for her pre ACA when plans could cherry pick and refuse coverage to sick consumers? Yeah, no. So she got sick in uh, November of 2015. So we were already in the ACA, you know, world. So no, I mean, we only ever had to deal with it, but, you know, in, in this. But she was born in 2013. Correct. And you had insurance Correct. then. Was we she did. covered under yes, that? She, she was, of course. And that was, yeah, an no, and, and that was an individual market plan. Yes. Correct. And Correct. so, and so, and so it was therefore a guaranteed renewable plan. Yeah. Right. And just so to be very clear, because, we had, you know, whenever, the government mandated that. And, and so your your her cancer, she, she would not have had an uninsurable pre-existing condition. She would have had coverage under your pre-existing plan Correct. when you were in since maybe since 2003. Right. I don't know if you've changed, but yeah. uh, but she would have guaranteed renewability protection that would protect her against and your, your family against her premiums going up when she got that cancer diagnosis. So it's actually right. not the case that she there would have been that insurance plans would have discriminated against her and denied her coverage. If you tried to switch plans, uh, then then perhaps they would have. But she would have had uh, coverage through your individual market plan. Yes. Sorry, I, Correct. Can I yeah, and also, and also, just let me say one thing. What was very interesting is that is that the flexibility we had under the 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 pre ACA plan. You know, we had the we. We could have gone to, for instance, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for sort of premium care. We could have gone in almost anywhere because that's the kind of plan that I had. And then, you know, under the, the Affordable Care Act, uh, not only did the prices go through the ceiling, um, but also at the end of the day, you know, that price increase was really just a signal to scarcity because, it, you know, in 2017, I was, there was nothing to buy. And in fact, I faced the same problem again this year. Like it, the price, it's not prices. It's, there, there's nothing available. To purchase and when you do purchase it you're limited extremely limited to what you can actually access tim you wanted to get in yeah the only the only comment i wanted to make about that is that yeah that's absolutely the case that you had this kind of renewable thing going on i think though like our country has like a pretty segmented health insurance system and not everybody that's in the individual market stays in the individual market forever. And what you have is a situation where, you know, people move between market segments on a regular basis, like losing their job and losing their employer coverage and such, such that you're not in like the same plan forever. And so the guaranteed renewability doesn't help everybody in the same way. Further, like, you know, people make mistakes a lot. Um, and in the guaranteed renewable world, like we are basically saying that like you make a mistake at one point and that mistake stays with you forever. Um, and there, again, like there are definitely downsides to the, the current system. Um, but I just want to make it clear that there were also like major downsides to the previous system that need to be traded off against what we're what we're seeing today. So the the, the reaction or response that I have to that, Tim, is that um, uh, 
much like the ACA took the individual market from a series of long-term contracts into one-year contracts where, uh, you know, you could, uh, you're, you're much more likely to lose your coverage as uh, Chris did when the ACA took effect, but also after the ACA took effect and Anthem dropped out and so forth. But uh, but a previous government intervention into health insurance markets that we call the tax preference for employer-sponsored insurance, which for reasons I can explain operates as a tax penalty on people who want to buy insurance in the individual market, uh, that also uh, uh, restricted the effective term of insurance contracts because uh, it, your employer-sponsored insurance can't be long-term insurance unless you stay uh, with your employer for your entire life. Um, and so, and so, I think we've identified two areas where uh, government interventions into insurance markets have taken what might have been a long-term product and turned it into a shorter-term product that does drop people. Uh, and leave them uh, with uh, what might be an uninsurable pre-existing condition. And um, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but uh, we have run over for five by five minutes. And so I do think we have to uh, call the, this event to a close without uh, getting to any more questions. I do apologize to the, the many people who, who asked additional questions. Um, uh, there, there were some good ones there. I want to thank Chris and Colette uh, and Tim uh, for joining us today to talk about this aspect of the ACA. I think it's an incredibly important and underappreciated aspect of this this struggle to make access to healthcare uh, more secure for people with expensive conditions. Um, and uh, I want to remind everyone that a video recording of this event will be available on Cato's webpage tomorrow. And with that, uh, we will go ahead and bring this event to a close. And I hope you'll join us at our next Cato Health live online event. Thank you.